0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 29 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co host, Stephen Lewis. What's up, man? How are you? Doing well. A little slow. Yeah. Both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kind of like uh, what Jim Carrey said about senior citizens in Dumb and Dumber, if you've ever watched that one. What is it? Uh, I forget the line. <laughs> Senior citizens, although slow and dangerous behind, behind the, the wheel, wheel. do Ooh, serve, serve a purpose. purpose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's me right now. Yeah. I'm concussed. I'm all messed up. We'll talk about that later. You um, hit your jelly
1: bean holder. I did
0: indeed. Yes, the beans have been have been just splattered all over inside there. So, bear with us if this one's a little slow, but we'll we'll make it through. Uh, this is the mountain bike podcast
1: where we talk about mountain bikes. You've been riding mountain bikes lately, Steven. Yeah. Here and there. Yeah. A little bit. How's the knee doing? It's doing better. It's uh, I took the cross bike out on a mountain bike ride, (laughs) did some jagged bouldering and it was not good. As one does, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but it's good. Uh, The knees, it's when I do stress it and stretch things out and wear it in, do hard ride. It was about two days of inflammation in 2 days of it just being sore and now it's down to less than a day. Oh like good. The rest of the afternoon after a ride it's a little bit painful, but it's getting better. So this is how you come back from a knee surgery. Yeah. You're doing it intelligently, I think of of
0: of not going all in too fast. You're just taking your time. Yeah. Cuz I'm sure that you want to ride a lot, but you're
1: you know. Well, of course, yeah. It's um it's interesting because you know, they say that an ACL reconstruction is usually 12 to 18 months for a full recovery. Hmm. And then the meniscus tears really push it towards 18 months. Wow! So I'm still not even quite halfway into my recovery. So I still have to be careful. Got a long time. Yeah.
0: So skiing this year?
1: Uh, (laughs) probably not. (laughs) Just joking.
0: Uh, You can find us on social things, right, Steven? Yes. There are social things.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> there is the Twitter. Yeah. That would Facebook be, uh, and Instagram. And Instagram. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: All over. Just look for MTV Podcast on any of those. Yeah. And I'm sure or the
1: MTV them. Podcast on Twitter because somebody yeah. stole... MTV Somebody Pod- had it,
0: yeah. 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 They aren't doing much with it. Jerks. But that's how it goes. Yeah. Or you can go to mtbpodcast.com, listen to this, uh, check out the store on there. Sorry for not getting those things up. We had some supplier issues again. So um, Stephen and I have uh, in a line right on the local sticker guy that yes. we, we want to use, and it's going to make it much easier. But top caps are up there, so you can check that out. Um, I, I also, you can review this on iTunes. With all that stuff out of the way, Stephen, let's just jump straight into the news. News time. News team, a-
1: First things
0: first, uh, a lot of things have happened. Way too many to cover. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of
1: stuff. Is it okay, to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we should we should probably hit the the highlights if you know what I mean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that was a good dad joke. Man. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Uh, the Da Vinci Sativa, right? Is yeah. that what it's called?
1: Herb. Spartan. or oh, sativa. Spartan. Yeah, yeah. Sativa. I yeah. think it's yeah, the Spartan, sativa. That's cannabis it, yeah. edition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: it's the cannabis edition. Yeah. Uh, da Vinci released a new a new Spartan Enduro bike. Yeah. Uh, they've got a Di2 battery slot underneath that remarkably seems to share the same profile as an implement that one might use to burn something like cannabis.
1: <laughs> Fair. Or they, maybe some sort of Ziploc baggie of some. <laughs> yes well they, in nevada it's legal for recreation now so true. in nevada and colorado we're good in california i think now yeah, too i'm not true. sure
0: yeah i think oregon so i don't know And probably canada who knows all over but they also recommend that it's a good spot if they did recommend it's yeah, a good spot to store your stash because
1: let's be honest not a lot of people are going to have a di2 battery on their bikes that's right yeah yeah we all know what it's really for yeah so uh
0: that bike came out and lots of other bikes came out yes uh, we Lots can't of Scots of that all, all look the same as all the other Scott bikes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they look good. Yeah. All of them look great. Yeah, they don't look terrible. Yep. No, they look all. great. Uh, racing side of things EWS happened uh, in Aspen. And uh, yeah, just uh, some highlights on that. Jerry Graves is a beast. Sam Hill is also a beast. Cecile Ravenel seems unstoppable. Mm hmm. Pretty crazy to see. Uh, but at the same time, she also had some stages that she lost. Uh, so uh, some parody there creeping in yeah. or maintaining, I should say. And they're up at Whistler right now but the biggest challenge for them. It's, it's called Crankzilla, by the way, The the... I don't know if you saw that. That's what they're
1: calling. But, I did not see this.
0: Yeah, it's a little regrettable, that part. But the course looks gnarly. Yeah. Um, there's a top-to-bottom from top of the world to the bottom of the resort. Yeah, There's uh, just a bunch of gnarly, gnarly stages. So, um, And it's, it's fun to see, actually, that top to bottom, I rode almost all the trails that they had in there. Uh, yeah. We couldn't ride top of the world when we were there, but that'll be fun to see. Yeah. You know, um, to see how slow I am compared to even the very
1: last place person at EWS. Yeah. The guy that has to walk his bike down cause he destroyed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: He'll still beat me. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, the smoke is gnarly Yeah, that they're dealing with there. You like, can't even see. So. That's going to be um, interesting to see. Smoke uh, will replicate in many ways, like the effects of altitude, not in the sense of on your body, but in terms of what you'll perceive things as. It'll be yeah. tougher to breathe and, and a little more difficult there. So uh, we'll see. Hopefully it clears out for them. But on the World Cup side of things, cross country racing has happened. And Yana Moina, she has like completely flipped the XC, the women's XC series on its head. Yeah. So she had Pauline Fran Prevost. And she also had Catherine Pendrel like throwing out gnarly attacks at her at Mont St. Anne and, and like going hard yeah. and she just like stuck with them. And then she just hit the afterburners toward the end. It's amazing.
1: It is. It was ridiculous to yeah. watch that. She's I just watched fast. the highlights of the XC and oh man, she's fast, man. Yeah. Uh,
0: pretty cool course too. And the women dealt with a little slicker course than the men, uh, because it had rained more recently. Yeah. Um, but I think actually, no, I take that back. It started raining in the men's race as well, I believe. So, uh, and then on the XC or on the men's XC side of things, uh, big shock you know uh, no
1: no (laughs) really believe it or not yeah wow
0: yeah um shouts to sofia gomez and keegan swenson friends Mm -hmm. of the podcast uh they they raced and they had they had tough days both of them so hopefully they have better races this weekend up at wyndham um can i can i go off on a bit of a rant really quick rant or tangent a little bit of both there you go all right uh, so there's a super fast XC racer. His name's Nick Beechin and he is from the U S and he raced up at Mont St. Anne and I feel like he did well, uh, just racing against the best of the best is always really tough. Yeah. But he mentioned something and it kind of stood out to me. He said, uh, it's amazing to me how far behind the curve the U S XC riders are. Okay. And that kind of stood out to me. I thought, okay, behind the curve. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting too deep into semantics here, but behind the curve to me, behind the curve implies two things. Like either you are, you don't have access to information or knowledge that other people or technology that other people have, Okay. or you are not implementing it at the same rate that knowledge or technology or something else.
1: Right. Okay. That's like behind the curve. I think so you're thinking behind the curve from either a training or equipment standpoint. Right. Okay. So I'm
0: wondering equipment. Nope. No. They have the same stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and train, <clears throat> training. I guess that's it. That's what they must be, you know, light years behind on, according to to you know that that type of thought process. And you know what? It, I don't get it, man. What are they doing that might be different?
1: I don't think that. I don't actually think, as a training standpoint, I think more of it has to do with if you look at. Um, Mont Saint Anne is the only North American stop for any of the UCI mm-hmm. downhill like for any of that. Mm-hmm. So, I think what he's saying behind the curve, I almost think from a venue event spectator spectator following, maybe that's what he's thinking.
0: I don't know because he said
1: XC he said XC
0: racers. So, I think he's talking about the riders. Okay. I, you know, and, and, and first of all, if that's an implication that like those guys are doping then, and, and by the way, uh, Nick, I, I, I don't, um, we're not trying I, to, I, oh, no, no, not at all. Yeah. I think that, that what you're pointing out here, yeah, it's uh, by the results, it's pretty obvious, right? That there's something there, but if we're, if we're, and we're not saying that this is what you're implying, just to be clear, but I know that a lot of people right now are thinking, oh, well, they're all dopers. Uh, it would be a statistical anomaly to assume that the whole
1: field is doping. That said. It also wouldn't be unprecedented, right? No. That's existed. Because I think another part of the cycling world has proven that that can happen.
0: Yeah. So uh, that said, and I'm sure that there are guys that are, that are juiced up and, and and doing any number of things to perf- to enhance their performance, uh, whether that's using substances or anything else that are banned on the water list. I'm sure that's happening, right? Because there are humans competing for something on the line, and that's money. Yeah. Right? That's, and we will, we will, ethics is always something that we are willing to sacrifice if it means, you know, making the bottom line work or, or, or getting whatever we want there. So I'm sure that there are people doping, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, I almost wonder if it's not that the U S riders are behind the curve, but you mentioned something. That's the only world cup that we have, right? Mm -hmm. We're not used to that. Uh, that type of environment. We, I'm, I shouldn't say that we love these riders, yeah. right. Exactly. You get to that race, it overwhelms you. and I believe that there's so much, so much to your performance that comes down to the mind. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not just down to the body. I believe I, I very firmly prescribe to the central governor model and the psychobiological models that people talk about when we're talking about human performance that the mind is a governor. And, and that, that manages that performance, not governor in the terms of limiter, it could be an enabler, but I believe that that is a managing step that you, that, that you have to go through for your performance to be actually utilized. So, I mean, maybe that's the situation thinking about it in Switzerland and everything else. I mean, they have crazy, super highly competitive, really stacked XC races all the time. Yeah maybe that's just an environment that they're used to. And that's just kind of the way it goes. And we're raising a different culture here. Yeah. I think that this question eventually will be answered. Cause I know that it's not just Nick's question it's, or Nick's point that he's making, but it's one that all of us have thought of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that in 15 years that will really be made manifest if in fact, uh, a culture like that changes that because of high school mountain biking and because of Epic rides and because of these state mountain bike, stage races and everything else that are coming on that are allowing XC to actually grow. Yeah. I feel like we'll then see a difference. True. You know, but it's interesting. I, the one thing that I think a lot of people, I bet a lot of people read that and just thought they're doping. And I honestly, I don't believe that that doping is as prevalent as most people think. Yeah. And I may be a fool for that, but or I an know. optimist. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? That's another way of saying it. Or
1: maybe way. we're behind the curve in technology with, like, down tube motors. Maybe that's... <laughs> this could happen, too. It could happen. Who knows? Yeah, you know. Uh, but, yeah, lots of... Uh, is there anything else, Stephen, in terms oh, there's, of the news? Oh, there's so many things. <laughs> we, we've we got other things we want to discuss today, so I think news yeah. can be, you know, that. held off a little bit.
0: Yeah, all right. Well, let's just go straight into the questions, then. Sound good? Question. It's a ridiculous question.
1: False. That's debatable.
0: All right, first one is from Caveman Biker. That's his, that's his given name actually on his,
1: on his Mother birth certificate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. His mom was like, you're going to be a biker, <laughs> whatever kind. Yes. Leathers like, or brain skull yeah. helmet thing <laughs> or, or wearing a cheetah or a bicycle thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. A pelt. <laughs> oh, bikers. Yes.
0: Those I'm die. an idiot. He yeah. <laughs> says, Hey guys, I'm that was a super to...
1: troopers reference. Yep. If you didn't get that. Yes, it was. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. When I mean, he was wearing the Lycra and he showed up. Yeah. So yeah, it yeah. was good. Yeah. Good
0: yeah. date. He says, Hey guys, I'm listening to episode 27 right now. Now, as you talk to the angry single speeder about primitive trails versus modern trails and the differing aspects that relate to that topic, my question is what can you do to keep these trails? The way they are here in Ogden, Utah shouts out to Ogden cool place. Mm -hmm. We have an amazing trail called skyline. It's part of the great Western trail and is some of the best riding around somebody, maybe the forest service is currently undertaking a project of neutering this trail. This trail is rocky, super steep in places, narrow, rooty, and tight. It's fantastic. Luckily, the best parts of the trail are untouched, but a multi-year project is underway to widen and smooth the trail using a trail cutting machine. I've included a link of what is admittedly not a great picture, but can give you an idea of what they are going to be cutting out. It's also much steeper than it looks in this picture. Anyways, that was a ramble, but the entire mountain biking and off-road moto community is sick to our stomachs about this project, but no one is listening to what we have to say. Is there an organization that can be reached out to that can help with advocating for keeping the great character of
1: this iconic Northern Utah trail? Feeling bummed, hmm. you know, it, especially dealing with neutering of trails, and we've dealt with some of that locally here this season, especially mm-hmm. in the uh, the Galena area of Reno yeah. at the base of Mount Rose up yeah. Tahoe. And usually, those projects are going to be through one of two sources. They're going to be through your local stewardship programs, mm-hmm. your, you know, uh, whether you have an IMBA chapter or you have some sort of area mountain bike association, like we have the Tahoe area mountain bike association yep. or the biggest little city, uh, tra- trail the biggest little, the biggest little trail stewardship. Um, so, or you have the forest service mm-hmm. that's typically who it's going to be um if it's a multi-use trail that's used a lot by hikers and equestrian people then they're going to have a lot more of a voice typically um they just happen to be more vocal i don't understand if it's more of them or if it's the vocal minority that's doing it but Mm -hmm. they usually get sanitizing of trails you know done for their purposes yeah um Beyond those two, it's it's got to be one of those two. Whoever the land manager is, or whoever your mountain biking stewardship program is.
0: Yeah, I think that it's important to represent uh, this side of things uh, to keep a trail raw and uh, rocky or keep it natural. I f- I feel it's important to represent it properly, mm-hmm. in the sense that what you're yes, it does provide a good riding experience, but at the same time, uh, it should be sustainable. And there are plenty of trails that are really technical and sustainable Yeah, and they should remain that way. But it's, it's key that you don't, uh, when you bring up these points that you aren't just saying like, you know, it's going to reduce my shred quotient because they don't care about that. Right. I, I guarantee you the reason that this is happening is probably because government funding of some sort is going toward making Ogden a more desirable place for people to come and recreate. Yeah. And if you have a trail that that can tout like, Hey, it's like, uh, you can go up and walk this with your family, do anything else like that in people's minds. They think that that's going to bring out more people for recreation. Yes. And it may in some cases, but in most cases it actually doesn't because the majority of people that are seeking outdoor recreation like that, the majority actually want a raw experience. Yeah, um, so it's just a misunderstanding that we regularly see. And yes, like Steven said, you have to work with your local trail stewardship to represent that. Yeah. And if you don't, then then you're simply you're underpowered. Um, So, yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: Yeah. And at the end of the day, um, you can also try to come to some sort of agreement. And, you know, the trail plan might be to sanitize the whole thing, but you can ask them to leave out your technical features or leave them alone instead of blocking them off or destroying them. There's lots of ways you can go about it. Yep. you're not going to stop a lot of these projects right. because they spend so much money on environmental impact studies and you know just everything that they have to spend to get to the point where they're actually going to build it yep. to where they have a design that they're not going to want to be like, oh, just kidding, we're not going to do that. We already spent $10,000, Yeah, so we're going to do it anyway.
0: Yep, so make yourself known early and often. Yeah. Uh, JBJ, he says, hey, guys, big fan, long-time listener. Ordered my shirts, and he says, and I'm ready to represent. Nice. Thanks, man. You can do that at mtbpodcast.com. Please order more because that will help us allocate more time and resources to this and be able to make even more content. Uh, He says, you guys fill in the knowledge gaps as well as teaching me things I didn't know I should know. So he says I purchased a park tool PCS10 workstand. What is that workstand Stephen? I actually don't know what the PCS10 is. It's a park tool stand, so I assume that that's uh, it's either going to be the wall mounted one or it's going to be the one that just has its own stand with it. Regardless, park tools use your park tool stands usually have a really nice clamping. Uh, a clamping option, I guess, versus uh, one quick thing. A lot of people ask like, what's the difference between like a cheap crappy work stand and a good one, how it clamps to the bike. That's the biggest thing that I've noticed. Yep. And it's a total pain, by the way, if you have a crappy one, because then it's not going to hold your bike steady, uh, or it's going to be a pain and require a lot of time every time to clamp it on and off. It's yeah. a total pain.
1: Yeah, and the P- the PCS 10 is the one with the bi-folding v shaped base okay. the legs. Gotcha. So that's there. We are looking yeah. at it now
0: Yeah. Uh, common stand. Uh, he says, I would like your opinions about clamping on dropper posts. My assumption is that if I keep this post spotless as well as the clamp and never clamp the post in the down position, that life is good. I uh, keep up the awesomeness, JBJ. So I- I've heard a lot of people freak out about this too, that like if you clamp a dropper
1: post that you're destroying it. It's so silly and just BS. In <laughs> yeah. fact, I think it was Vital just did a long-term test. I think it was Vital MTB. Yeah. And they just did this long-term test on a bunch of different seat posts and found that it's all crap. You can, I've been doing it for years and I've never had a single issue. Yep. Make sure your stanchions are clean. Make sure that the clamp is clean. I usually actually take a microfiber rag and wrap it around the seat post yep. and then I clamp it in. I'll do that too. And I have a, I have one of the feedback sports elite, like the high end, the ridiculously expensive, um, super good stand home, uh, work stand. And I, that thing, I, I've never had a single issue with any seat post ever. Talk about the leverage that you put on that bike when
0: you're riding. Yeah, when you're climbing. You're You're putting in way more leverage than you would ever put having that clamped in a stand. Yeah. Way more. Yeah. So it's moot. Um, Clamping it down below on the lower portion of the dropper post. You could crush it if it's a very thin seat post. It would be, you'd have to have like a KS LEV, the carbon one, the CI or whatever, um, something like that. But.
1: Chances are you're not going to. You'd have to be a dippy to to really yeah. <laughs> crush that thing. Now, granted, I have seen people take the the Reverb seat post and they clamp the top, the seal head location, and they'll actually deform it a little bit, right? And but leak. not the seal head, right? That's I've never had the seal head, you know, actually do that. It was just the aluminum around the base of it, so yeah, it's not a big deal. Just clamp the upper part of the stanchion, clamp away, it's fine, fine, yeah, yep.
0: Dale, hey guys, great job on the podcast. My question is regarding Jonathan's comments on recovery. Specifically, the all cycling time must be offset by recovery. Can you describe what you mean by this? On a pure time-weighted basis, non-training hours, including sleep, will exceed training hours for any athlete in most imaginable circumstances. You could ride 84 hours a week if it was as simple as offsetting training hours one-to-one. If you're looking at a specific ratio of recovery time to training, And can you make any recommendations for stretches or other activities that you have found to aid cycling specific recovery? Thanks. And look me up. If you're ever down in Marin, thanks Dale. Uh, that'd be cool. Yeah. If we ever want to do some road riding (laughs) Ouch. sorry, Dale. Ouch. (laughs) So a couple things, uh, firstly, just because you're not on your bike doesn't mean you're recovering. And I don't think that you implied that Dale, but I just want to make that clear for, for everyone listening. Um, just because you're sleeping doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's perfect recovery. Uh, you may have uh, light in your room. That's not allowing your bike to, or your body to release or manage the levels of melatonin in your proper or in your body. Well, uh, or HGH getting the proper release there, all the different hormones that you would need to be able to recover. Uh, you may have too much noise or you may have a really bad mattress mm-hmm. or pillow. Who knows? I don't have a bad mattress. Well, there we are. Yeah. So if that's the case, if you know. So I guess that my point here is that just because you're not riding your bike, it doesn't mean that it's like an absolute, like 50, 50, you are either working on your, or you're either training or you're either resting, uh, the way that we live our lives introduces a gradient of recovery from anything from very poor to very good. So when you were talking about offsetting the amount of work you do with the amount of recovery, that's, that's highly variable based on how much stress your body can handle and how much training you currently are used to doing, uh, your age and, uh, plenty of other things like even, you know, genetics will work into this, but basically in most cases. What we find is that if you're the type of athlete, if you're just an average athlete and you're doing, uh, you know, five hours a week of structured interval training, so that's like pretty high intensity stuff, mm-hmm. or I shouldn't say high intensity, it's specific intensity. Okay. In other words, you're working at specific intensities for a specific amount of time in order to stress your capacity. So that's the key thing is stressing your capacity. If you're doing like five hours of that a week, chances are, if you're just an average guy that is going to make you very, very tired. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm saying five hours of structured work, not like I go out and ride and 10 minutes of that ride, 15 minutes of that ride, or 30 minutes of that ride is maybe structured stuff, but no, 60 minutes of 60 minutes is full on structured. If that's the case, then you are going to be the type of person that is going to be probably asking for one to two days a week where you are not on the bike at all. And just recovering. Yeah. And that would be sustainable. Now, you can increase this within reason, and uh, you might get to the point where you're doing, uh, geez, as much as eight hours a week, 10 hours a week of structured stuff. That's really tough on the body. 10 hours a week of purely structured training is a lot of stress. And in that case, it would be very difficult for most people to be able to carry on a career. And family while doing that, yeah. that becomes an extremely difficult challenge. The reason for that is when you are home, you cannot just relax and recover. You don't have your legs up. You're chasing little chillings around the house or you're making dinner, uh, or you're at work and even though you're sitting down, that doesn't mean that you're recovering, you're, you know, you're not in a proper position for your body to be able to relax and recover. Uh, you are also incurring a lot of mental stress at work or emotional stress and that it is that also very much affects the hormonal balance in your body and, and aiding recovery. So it, it really is. There isn't an easy answer to that, but the one thing that you can do is you can gauge it, uh, but in order to gauge how much recovery you need, you first need to make sure that you are measuring how much work you are doing with precision train road plug right there. Yeah. So that's honestly it. Like if you can measure one part, at least you've controlled a variable that allows you to then measure others. Yeah. So, that's absolutely. Key. Austin. Hey guys, keep up the good work. The podcast seems to be getting better every week. I've got a suspension question for you. I'm 5'7, 210 pounds with riding gear. I live in Alabama where our trails have rocks of all sizes and plenty of roots. I ride a 2010 Trek Session with a 2016 Boxer World Cup up front and a Float X2 in the rear. Uh, drops and G outs are dialed in, but when it comes to hitting roots and smaller rocks at speed, The bike seems to want to bounce and wander as well as lose most of its speed. Any thoughts on how to control the bouncing and retain some speed?
1: Uh, especially on, on routes, which are going to be more of like a square edge hit. The thing that you're running into is need a way softer compression and a faster rebound for that. Mm -hmm. So, and that's all in your high pressure or not your high pressure, your high speed compression and high speed rebound. Um, The thing is, also, with a 2010 Trek session, you're, I think, still on 26-inch wheels. Mm -hmm. Not that that's a bad thing, don't get me wrong, but I do notice a vast difference on square-edge hits between a 29 and a 27.5 and a 26. So, that is going to be something that you're not going to have a whole lot of ability to really fix that after you tune your suspension after you tune your suspension so see what you can do with a lighter high speed compression and then a faster high speed rebound yep and see what happens there that would be the way to fix it yep keep the tires on the ground instead of uh
0: bouncing and throwing you up into the ground exactly into the air next one is from wish i had an asr i did not make that up he genuinely said that. Okay. Good. All right. He says, Hey, lads, love the podcast. Five stars. Okay. So I've been racing mountain bikes for years now and have not owned a full squish bike for about four to five years. Spent all my time racing on my hardtails and have been racing 24 hour solo races and long 100 mile and 100 kilometer marathons. Ooh, that's right. Mm.
1: Of late, most of this has been uh, raced on my single speed. Oh. Like, I'm, like Kurt Gensheimer always says, you have to be a real angry person to want to ride a single <laughs> speed. Indeed. He says, I'm looking to race either BC bike race or single track six with John,
0: which Jonathan is racing. Whilst I'm typing this or crashing while you're <laughs> typing it, depending on what day it was. <laughs> Don't wait to spoil it, man. <laughs> I'm linked with the Trek store and hence have a fair range of choice of bikes for such racing. Here's my thoughts, but I'm interested to hear yours. A Trek top fuel. EX or the Trek, or forgive me, a Trek Fuel EX or the Trek Top Fuel, Top Fuel being the more XC bike. If I go for the Top Fuel, I would have the option to race more XC style races or 100 kilometer marathons here in Australia and be competitive. I could then drop a 120 millimeter fork in the bike for BC Bike Race, or I get a Fuel, which is possibly a better bike for the job, and race my single speed if it's more XC style racing here. I'm torn. Hopefully Jonathan has some insight into the correct selection based on his experience at single track six. Keep up the good work, good work guys. Sorry for the long and drawn out question.
1: I personally think fuel EX and yeah. keep a single speed, but mm-hmm. what do you say, Jonathan?
0: Uh, well, I mean the, the top fuel I believe is your, that's your more XC option. That's the way XC and, option. Yeah. And I, uh, so I, I actually haven't heard great things about the fuel EX Over the, I've heard that the top fuel people prefer to the fuel EX kind of strange, but I've heard that about that bike. Now it could be wrong and it could just be the, the few examples that I've heard from people, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, my two cents is don't put a 120 on the XC bike though, because if it's not designed to be like that, you could be throwing things off a bit. I know the new Epic, for example. Um, you know, we talked about how it's, uh, remarkably similar to the ASR in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that a lot of the employees at Specialize now have what they're calling like the free ride Epic, which that's not the brand calling it that. That's
1: just them individually. And it's basically an Epic with a 120 mile fork up front. So, so it really is like an ASR. <laughs> yeah, Imagine yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what did but, they do with all those ASRs after they used them for getting the kinematics down on the Epic? <laughs> I don't know, man. Epic? Did <laughs> they knows? sell them on? bike, maybe. No, I don't know.
0: It's not no. Okay, <laughs> um, but anyways, that's uh, something that uh, I've seen a lot of people do, but it doesn't necessarily work on all bikes. Yeah. Um, It seems like you're stuck into Trek, and I would I would look, and they're good bikes, but I would just consider other ones. Like that new Epic looks really good, and it you can run a 120 mil fork on that thing, and apparently it rides really well.
1: So does the Scalpel. Uh,
0: yeah, the new Scalpel does. Pop that to 120 in the front, and it's a beast too. Yep. So. I mean there are a lot of different options. For BC bike race or single track six, I would absolutely recommend having a full suspension. Single speed would not have been possible at single track six. Just well, flat out no. Well that attitude. No. <laughs> no. Like the climbs well, we'll get into this. But anyways, it was really rough. I would recommend full suspension. I would recommend going for something that can run one twenty up front. New the new Scott, um, yeah. for example, the Scott Spark a uh, 900 I believe it's called that is the one that has 120 up front uh that's a little longer slacker and lower maybe than what you're after but we'll see um that's what I would get something like that and of course an ASR just as your name indicates so all right Jonathan and Steven this one's from Eric Uh, Thanks for continuing to put out a quality podcast. Five stars always. And I share episodes with my friends all the time. Thank you, Eric. Of course. Like I always say, imagine if we tried. Yeah, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) If more people do that, though, sharing episodes with their friends, uh, it will make things much more awesomer. Yes. That's a scientific fact. Yes. He says, I have a, in quotes, bro bar engineering question. I purchased the Yeti five, a few months ago, and the bike is as advertised. I ordered it with 800 millimeter bro bars. I've never ridden this wide before. I'm considering cutting them down to seven eighty, which I have ridden before and quite liked if I cut the bars down, how would that affect steering leverage? My limited engineering knowledge le- leads me to believe that I will end up with a decrease in steering leverage, IE requiring more input for me to turn but would also decrease side to side steering when climbing and increase the ability to finesse the bike through when riding technical trail. I feel the advantage of stability of wider bars when going downhill lift service riding, but the majority of my riding is technical trail. Thanks in advance for your input. Mahalo plenty bras. Mahalo. Indeed. Eric,
1: Eric, I don't think you're really going to notice that big of a difference between 800 and 780. Personally, just from my experience, I ran both. I ran 800s for years. I ran 800s on my first SB55. And then I built the second one with 780s. And my Jekyll has 780s. You don't notice a difference.
0: Is it fair to say that people make a bigger deal or the only situation where people make a bigger deal out of a small difference is like in wheel size. Yeah. Like, but handlebar stuff, it's like no mine are 760. Oh my goodness. Instead of 740, like that's crazy, right? Like, yeah. you know, we make such a big deal out of it. It's kind of funny. Cause in the end, like you said, you know, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. Yeah. Scientifically. Yeah. It will change some things, but it's going to be minimal. Also look at how much you would cut off on each end, going to 780 and then think about fitting through trees or not hitting things, it's, it's it's 10 millimeters. It's really not going to like, you're going to make a movement with your body that will overcome anything like that for sure. Yes. Now, if you're talking about going from 800 to 740, that's a big difference, big difference. Yeah. And you'll start to feel things, but small differences, not too much. I personally, you know, I, I, we've talked about this before, but bar width should be based off of your, your anatomy a bit. It should be based off of your shoulder width and, and where your arms and hands normally are comfortably fall onto the bike. Yep. Get into a comfortable pu- push-up position that's not too far uh, where your hands are in a powerful position, not too far out of your shoulders, and that's probably where you need to be. Yep. That works for me. So, Mahalo, Eric. Uh, next one, Jason. Hey guys, first off, love the podcast, both mount both uh, the mountain bike podcast and Trainer Road. Nice five stars earned and given. Thank you, Jason. I've got a question about through axles. I've got a Norco Revolver XC race bike, and the rear axle is a DT Swiss RWS one forty two by twelve. On multiple occasions, I've had it loosen up while I'm riding. Lever stays in the closed position, but the axle unthreads. Needless to say this affects my ability to party. <laughs> I've tightened the, that would indeed. I've tightened their lever as much as I can, but I'm worried about stripping the the frame and axle. Is this a common issue and are there any tips for fixing it or do I just replace it with something
1: else? You know what's funny, Jason? That's what DT Swiss RWS axles do. They all come loose. I've, I've never had thing? I've never had one stay in place. Yep. Ever. So you can get different axles, though. Yeah. So what you do is you find the thread pitch of your RWS because they make DT Swiss RWSs in all thread pitches. Mm -hmm. Find your thread pitch, and then you can absolutely switch to something else.
0: And to find your thread pitch, you can just shoot them an email.
1: Yep. So, yeah, shoot your uh, Norco revolver, you know, just shoot them an email and say, hey, what's the thread pitch on this axle? I need to get a replacement axle. That's not the DT Swiss RWS.
0: Yep. Jim, what was the name of the topical cream discussed on the last podcast, topical something? Uh, it was the topical edge. Oh, that's right. I was cream. gonna say it was right on the edge of my tongue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> ha ha,
0: ha. <laughs> You are full of them. Full experience. of the dad Great. jokes today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Patrick says, Hey guys, first of all, cheers from Sweden. And thank you for a great podcast. new to mountain biking and started out last summer on a Trek Excalibur nine hardtail, the bike got stolen this spring and now I'm on a specialized Camber comp full suspension. Well, it sounds like you stepped up, man. Mm -hmm. So bummer for the steal, but good, good, good on the deal. The only thing I bought and use is a helmet gloves and cheap padded bike pants. I use my old Adidas shoes, the scrubby pedals, which, and the scrubby pedals that came with the bike. I have no hydration bag or seat bag. Basically nothing except some cheap clothing. What should I buy next to make my rides better? Better shoes, hydration pack, better pedals, softer grips. Thanks.
1: I think better pedals and better shoes. Yep. I was just going to say the same thing. If you're going to stick with flats, get a good set of, uh, you know, like uh, the Race Face Atlas pedals, Mm -hmm. HT pedals, Mm -hmm. friggin' phenomenal pedals and great customer service, great all around, just awesome pedals. And they come in like, I don't know, 4,000 different anodized colors. Remember what we've said,
0: use anodized colors
1: sparingly on your bicycles. So they make like four different shades of black. (laughs) And like seven different shades of gray yeah, and then silver.
0: Yeah. Don't go outside of those things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, and then 510, their flat shoes are amazing. I have my qualms about their SPD shoes, but their flat shoes are amazing. Yeah. Great support. Get a set of the free Rider pros or something like that. And
0: yeah, that's what I would say is to target and I would get pedals first and then shoes. Yeah. Um, for sure. Uh, but also if you go from your Adidas, if you have a pair of Vans, those would be better to use than Adidas shoes. Yeah. Like Cause vans ones.
1: are made for skateboarding. They're made for that grippy type of, you know, they have that support in them. So.
0: Yep. Something yeah. similar, simple like that would be better than running uh, like a running shoe on there yeah. for sure. Frank, the tank. He says, Hey guys, thanks for the awesome podcast. Listen to a bunch of episodes traveling to Austria and Italy for a couple of XC marathon races. Well, Good day, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Put another shrimp on the Barbie. <laughs> another Dumb and Dumber reference. <laughs> yeah, they're all we're full of them. It says even my wife is taking in the knowledge, even though she's pretending to sleep or she's sleeping during the long car rides. <laughs> she's a nice lady, <laughs> wonderful person. Yeah, I consider myself a fair climber with an FTP of about four point five watts per kilogram. Rub it in. You are. <laughs> yeah, you are uh, a good rider. If you're at four point five watts per kilogram, you are in. You know, we're talking ninety five percentile. Like you're you're doing real well. In these Euro marathons, I can manage to create gaps on competitors in long climbs. However, I almost always lose that advantage, plus more in long, fast, non-technical, loose over hard descents, gravel type of stuff. Almost all of my competitors can corner faster than me. I ride a Cannondale FSI with Maxxis Icon 2.35 up front, 2.2 in the back. Please share your knowledge and insights on cornering over on loose over hard stuff. Thanks so much and keep up the awesome work. Frank.
1: Frank, um, I think you just don't trust your bike and your tires to hold you in the corners.
0: Yep. And I bet that you're going, yeah, I don't. So what do I do?
1: You trust yourself. You I trust have tips. What do you got,
0: Jonathan? First of all, get rid of that icon up front. Yeah. Um, I'm not blaming the tire, but one thing that you'll find is that tires with uh, higher side knobs have more of a shoulder to them. Mm-hmm. They will bite in more. The icon has a very rounded profile. Yeah. So it never feels like it's really locked in. There's it no provides planted. good traction. Yeah but it never feels like, you know, where your edge of traction is. That can be unnerving on loose over hard stuff. Absolutely. That would be my, my two cents on that. But honestly, that's not the real problem. The real problem is the fact that you are going into that terrain and you are feeling nervous or, or, or you're feeling some type of, you know, you're, you're scared a bit about that type of terrain. When you go into that, what you need to do is do the opposite of what your body is doing. When you are afraid, you move back and you move up. That's what we do with our body. We move away from the fear, whatever that is causing that fear, right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, the, the ground that you don't trust. So, what you need to do is do the opposite of that. You need to weight your front tire. Think about it. Isn't it ironic? Like our body is freaking out about something. So, and we're freaking out about losing traction with the front tire. So, our body says, Oh, you should throw yourself back and up. And that does the absolute opposite of weighting the front tire. It is ironic. Yeah. yeah. You need to weight the front tire. So, get low and make sure that you keep that chest over the bars and you just focus on, instead of going back, focus on hinging at the hips and getting low with your shoulders. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Um, you'll put more weight on there and it'll be much better. Also look into like a lot of different skills training on, as far as separating your bike from your body in a turn. If, when you're in these type of situations, you'll want to have your outside leg dropped down and you'll want to be separating to allow yourself to put traction on the bike properly or distribute your weight properly. And then also separating the lean angle of your bike from your body. Yes. When you're doing that. Um, but biggest thing is you're probably panicking or at least feeling apprehensive. So you lean back and up and you do, you're just doing, making it worse. That's what we all do. We need to, in those moments, do the opposite and just double down and lean more into it. And it'll put more weight on the front. Mm-hmm. That's
1: it? Yeah. Nice. All right. I was I was thinking of Alanis Morissette jokes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I could see that. At the you beginning, the and I'm time. just like,
1: I, I can't do this. <laughs> Thank I can't you. do it. Yeah. I'm gonna just be quiet. Winsome cash. That's uh, his name. I don't know if he
0: thinks that this is a lottery or what, but uh he says I'm stoked racing enduro this year, and from Jonathan's recommendation, I've been training on my road bike and using Trainer Road. I've definitely noticed a big gain in my fitness from the training. Sweet man, good to hear. I'm racing an evil reckoning and wondering if I should be training on a 29er hardtail rather than a road bike as the position will be closer to my race bike. What's your thoughts? Yeah, What do you think, Stephen?
1: I think that if you're going to train for fitness on a road bike, you should be training for your riding and your technical abilities on the bike you race on. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that, you know, I don't, appreciate the idea of not riding a road bike and riding a hardtail 29er -hmm. because that's closer to a mountain bike. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's more cost effective to just train for fitness on the road bike with Mm -hmm. trainer road and get on your reckoning and go shred.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's going to be hard to mimic the position of a reckoning and yes, your body will be less capable of putting out the same amount of power in a different position. Yeah. Uh, power output, is your your FTP is your FTP, but your ability to exploit that FTP is dependent upon your position. Yeah, if that makes sense. So uh, it's it, that is something that yeah, if your twenty nine or hardtail replicates it more, then sure, go ahead. If you're not riding your bi- road bike outside very much, then yeah, th- just put the hardtail that you have, if you that you indeed have one, put that on the trainer and use that instead if it allows you to get closer to that position of your evil that you'll be racing on. Yeah. That's the two things now, now keep in mind though, if you're doing enduro training, uh, a lot of the stuff that's really gonna count, uh, chances are you're probably doing like the gravity plan, uh, or if you aren't, you should on trainer road for, for enduro. It's a lot of really hard efforts and, uh, that stuff, a lot of them you'll be doing out of the saddle, but you know, you could also be doing them in the saddle too. So that's something to keep in mind on that road bike. Uh, you know, if you're doing a lot of those efforts out of the saddle, then you're probably getting close to, to, you know, a wash. So exactly. Yeah. So last one from North Kona. With the popularity of foam and rubber tire inserts, Huck Norris, Kushcore, et cetera, do you expect to see them evolve into a common setup, maybe OEM on all trail bikes, or is the weight penalty too much? $50 for a strip of foam like Huck Norris is a sad joke. Sure. They have some R and D invested, but I'm sure there is a ton of knockoffs on their way. And yeah, I'm sure there is. We should explain what these are first. Yeah. Do you want to go, do you want me to do that? Go ahead. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cause cause you'll dig into this a little more. So basically what they are is they're, they're foam. And they are a foam rubber tire or a foam or rubber tire insert, depending on the different kind. Mm-hmm. And what those do is they, uh, so Huck Norris kind of looks like a belt, if you will, uh, imagine a belt flat on the ground and that belt then goes inside your tire and it links up to itself. So it can make like a full circle. Yeah. And what that will do is that will number one, uh, it's, it's intended to to help with bottoming out so that if you really slam down on your tire, um, that you won't just hit your rim. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that it does, it also makes mounting tires theoretically easier because it's something inside that might be pushing on the tire outward. Even a small amount might help it pop onto the beat easier, but really in the end, what this is meant to do is allow you to adjust the tire pressure so that you aren't running tire pressure. To counter bottom outs, but you're running tire pressure just to make sure that you have the best possible performing tire. Yeah. So that's really kind of what they are—they're uh, foam or rubber things that go inside your tires. Yeah. Uh, you've tried one of them out, right? Or I at actually, least installed.
1: Yeah. So the the wheel set that I just built for my friend Brian Butler, we put a Cush Core in the back, um, and it makes mounting the tire a little bit more of a pain. Uh, but hmm. beyond that, it's really cool. The How is it thing, more
0: difficult to mount? <clears throat> Just because you had to put something in there? So or?
1: the way that the foam gets stretched onto the rim, it fits super tight. Mm, it's okay. not easy to mount that. I mean, it's easy, but it's hard to get it in place. Mm-hmm. And then now it's so tight up against the rim and you have to be able to pull it and shove the tire in between the rim and the Cush core on two separate sides. And the, the thing about the Cush core is it's about an... I don't know, almost two and a quarter inches wide. Wow. It's really wide and it sticks out over the edge of the, of the actual rim itself. So getting the tire onto the Cush core is hard to begin with. Then you have to feed the tire in between the rim and Cush core I all the way around and then on the second side. So Huck Norris would probably be easier. Um, it would be easier, but I also like the benefits of the Cush Core better because Me the Cush Core acts as a suspension. It does it makes it so that you can once again tune your tire pressure based solely on traction and performance, and then you actually have that bottom out resistance. It's almost like having a bottom out damper, yep. in the actual tire assembly. For those awesome. that, for those that like to party. <clears throat> yeah. So no more biting sidewalls, no more, mm-hmm. you know, pinch flatting, no more, none of that. So do you think they'll work their way into production? Like as far as like production bikes, like coming OEM? I highly doubt it. Yeah. Cause you look at OEM. I mean, half the time tubeless tire setups don't even come with tubeless tape. I know. It's crazy. Like the fact that they don't do that bothers me. Yeah. So I don't see them coming OEM, but I think that they're going to yeah. be OEM compatible in so many platforms and i think they're good i think people should check them out not Mm -hmm. necessarily all the way around on their bike but i think rear it's a smart thing to do
0: (laughs) yeah i don't think that they'll be oem i just don't see it uh steven with that let's get in and thank you by the way for submitting your questions you can do so at mtbpodcast.com we did not get to them all there were a lot yes so but keep them coming we dig it uh and hopefully we can answer yours next time let's get into the business
1: is business time
0: Uh, Steven, let's, let's talk about this bike race I did. Yeah. Single track
1: six. You went to Canadian land again. Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the organizers of that race listened to the Trainer road podcast kay. and they invited myself and our other two co-hosts, our CEO from Trainer road, Nate Pearson, and our head coach, Chad Timmerman. They invited us three up to go race it and they mm-hmm. covered our entry fees, which was really nice of them. Uh, we, we paid for, for other things like travel and lodging that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that disclaimer's out of the way. Um, it's a six day mountain bike or XC mountain bike stage race. And it's known for being one of the gnarlier mountain bike stage races. There is in terms of technical terrain, not gnarlier because it's, you know, really long or, or anything else like that, but it's technical. Like it's like a true mountain bikers race. And that was pretty evident with the start list. There were some like enduro racers, some good enduro racers there, like, okay. uh, Alex McGinnis or crunk shocks as he's known, uh, shouts to shouts to you, Alex. You did awesome, uh, insanely fit riders that are also extremely capable descenders, uh, but this year was gnarly. This mm-hmm. was the gnarliest year they've done. Okay. And they almost were like apologizing for it in an email afterward and saying they're going back to just, uh, XC racing again. Cause this was like, genuinely the descents were like EWS stuff okay. that you see <laughs> like, Good. and the climbs, most of the climbs came up to 15% average and they <laughs> kicked over 30. Yeah. And they were long and we had days, nearly every day it averaged somewhere around like 5,300 feet of climbing, I think every day. And that was in 24 to 30 miles and keep in mind, they were loops. So it's actually that much climbing in about 12 miles, Good. (laughs) 12 to 13. So you can imagine how steep that would be. Mm -hmm. It was really tough. Um, And uh, I came into it hoping that I was going to be able to get a top 15 on a stage and I didn't really know where I'd sit in GC, but I, and I ended up, I was right around 20th, uh, from stages one, two, three, four and five. And then I crashed on mm-hmm. stage five and, uh, I don't know where I finished on stage five It's
1: pretty rough. Well, you finished at the finish line. Yes, this is true. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. I learned some things on stage races though. So let's, let's talk about what you learned from this Yeah. before we talk about your jelly bean holder.
0: So, yeah. So first of all, um, stage races like this mountain bike stage races are just so gnarly. Mm -hmm. Uh, ones like this that you're climbing up stuff that's that steep and then descending, you have to be so on because it's so gnarly your body. The toll that takes on your body is rough, Mm -hmm. like really gnarly. Uh, this race in particular, like, and stage races in general, go conservative on your gearing. Because by stage, what you can handle on stage one, stage four is a different story. Yeah. You're going to be really tired. So go conservative on your gearing. I went with uh 1042 rear cassette, and then I had a 30 tooth chainring up front. Three zero.
1: Yeah. And it was not enough. You should have had a 28.
0: And yeah. And I'm at like 4.4 Watts per kilogram right now. So that gives you an idea. So that's like a hundred and, uh, so that's like 145 pounds and an FTP of right around 300. So... That, that gives you an idea like that it was still too much, man. I was grinding down to like 40 RPM yeah, nonstop. It was pretty rough. So we switched up to Eagle, uh, partway through because our CEO broke his bike on the uh-huh. first day. Uh, so I, it, his bike turned into an organ donor and I just started pulling organs from it, which Good. was the drivetrain. Yeah. So it's one thing I learned. The other thing is these mountain bike stage races. I don't know, man, they're pretty rough. Have you ever had any hankering to do something like that? <laughs> what what is your perspective on a mountain bike stage race?
1: You know, honestly, as, as gnarly as some of these get per stage per day, yeah. if they did a mountain bike stage race where they were like, we're going to give you stage one and it's like, a, you know, say 4,000, 5,000 feet of climbing and then some gnarly descending. And then the next day we're all just going to hang out at the pool and just <laughs> relax and chill and, yeah. you know, recuperate. Yeah. And then day three would be stage two. Yeah. If they did something like that, I could do that. I always need my recovery. I can't just constantly put out and out and out and out. You know, some of these two-day Enduros... Are hard enough on my body and I'm getting old. So yeah. not really getting super old. But old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I really think that when it comes to a stage race, I think day after day after day for six or seven days is just too much. Dude, It was a beast, man. Especially on this course. It was pretty rough. Yeah, It's not to say that it couldn't be fun and that people can't do it. I mean, it's clear that people do, but I yeah. just, I don't get it. I, yeah. Nope. Not me. It was
0: gnarly, man. Uh, if you want a challenge as a cross country bike racer, it's the way to go. Yeah. Uh, it'll, it'll be a challenge for you. This, uh, this next one that they're doing the next year, it sounds like it's going to be less gnarly okay. uh, still, it'll still be gnarly though. Cause it's single track six and yeah. that's how they do things. But, um, a couple things uh, that I learned from this first of all, on recovery, when you have one race to the next and you bring up the two day Enduros, and I know we have a bunch of Enduro uh, racers that listen to this, mm-hmm. when you have two day Enduros, uh, you should be doing absolutely everything that you can to number one make that first race day as short as possible. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people like they have like 10 hour days. It's like up at the Mendocino Enduro, a bunch of people are up like nine to 11 hours, you know? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I know that it was a long day. I think you guys rode like 40 miles that day. It was, it was long. But on those days, like if you're taking breaks and stuff, keep in mind, you could be taking breaks after. And when you're doing that, you could be laying down with your legs up. Showered, clean, rested, not having to be out there on the bike, the more time you extend on the bike, the worse. Yeah. And I saw a lot of people that were just like kind of noodling around and everything else and wasting energy before or after. And, and man, I was, when I was done with that race, I was off my bike and I was trying to get home so I could recover as quickly as possible. Yep. But that's what you should be doing. So number one, make your first day as short as possible. If that means just riding through at your own pace, maybe, and sacrificing the, the bro time you might have with your friends, it might be worth it because you'll have so much more energy the next day. Yep. If you can get an hour more or a half hour more of recovery, that could pay off huge the next day. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, make sure that you're eating enough on the first day. Uh, But I should say you're eating on the first day for the second day, if that makes sense. Yes. So whatever you're eating during that race, you should be considering this is my fuel and this is how I'm prepping my body for tomorrow. Yeah. Not how I'm allowing myself to keep going now, but how I'm prepping for tomorrow. Yeah. So make sure you're eating the right type of stuff that doesn't upset your stomach, that you can process well and eating enough of it. Number two, uh, the other thing that I feel, or sorry, number three on this. Another thing that people I think are, are really misunderstanding with this is These stage races, you have to have your bike or you have to have parts on your bike and everything else that aren't so unique that you have to worry about it. So I saw somebody, for example, with like really old Mavic wheels at this race and they were looking for a spoke yeah, and they were completely out of luck, you know? Um, so if you have the ability to, 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 choose for your equipment, choose something that you can replace easily Yeah. at a bike shop or anything else like that, or, or carry
1: or, extra Mavic spokes.
0: Yeah. yeah if you just, have to
1: just don't fall on them. That could yeah. be very bad. Don't become a, a, a racer kebab. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 racer kebab. <laughs> uh, so that was, that was another thing. Uh, next if when it comes to tires on stage races like this, pick the extra prote- protection on the sidewalls for sure. Just do it. It's going to be better off. I saw one guy every day. He had at least one flat tire. One day he had three flat tires, so not good. He started off hard every race and then he would have flats. So yeah, definitely go for an earlier, uh, sidewall protection on the tires. And then, uh, I guess another thing is if this is, if you're doing a stage race, be that annoying hotel guest and, or, or racer that calls up either the hotel or the race organizers and asks every single question. Our first hotel didn't have AC and it was like 90 degrees Uh and there was, there were no fans, there were no anything. So it was 90 degrees, if not more in our house at all times. That's not good for recovery after a race and you're racing in, you know, 90 to hundred degree heat. Yeah. So that was not good. Uh, Definitely something that, that we should have considered, but ask all those questions beforehand, man, get them all out of the way. Um, but stage racing, I had a killer time. Those trails in Roslyn, British Columbia are good. Uh If you are an enduro rider, that type of stuff, or you like a challenging trail stuff that might make you pretty uncomfortable at times. This is the way to go. Yeah. It is so good. It's a tiny little town, not a lot of amenities there, but there's just so much that so much good riding in that region. So the seven summits trail in Roslyn should be one that if you are ever in the interior of BC in that area check it off your list. It's so good. A lot of fun. There was 15 kilometers of of uninterrupted descending on the final stage. Wow. It was so good. So, and I think in that 15 kilometers, we probably dropped somewhere around three to 4,000 feet. So
1: how many meters is that?
0: Uh, around 1200 meters. I think it was what we dropped.
1: So because you're in Canada. So yeah,
0: yes, this is true. Um, also don't trust Canadian taxi drivers in small towns and there's only one taxi. He was telling us that it was a 14-kilometer trip, no, 17-kilometer trip from town to the race start where we were at, uh, where our hotel was, and it was three kilometers. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. So he was charging quite a lot for that 14 kilometers. Anyways, uh, Nelson, BC is totally different, but way prettier Mm -hmm. than Rosalind. And Nelson was like...
1: You hear that, Rosalind? You ugly. Yes. (laughs) You ugly, girl.
0: It was was a pretty place, but Nelson is like... It's, it's picturesque. It's something from postcards. Okay. Gorgeous place and way uh, more like North shore style riding there. So more technical, like man-made features, mossy, more uh, like tighter forest. Whereas in Roslyn, it tended to be more kind of like spread out, thinner, sparse forest, uh, similar to like the Sierra terrain that we have here. So... Uh, interior of BC though is amazing. A little town in Caslow has some old gnarly kind of sketchy trail in that area. uh, that was pretty cool. And that's where I ended up, uh, that's where I ended up crashing. But those are my tips on all of that, uh, stage racing, how to do it right. Really? You have to prepare for beforehand in terms of ramping up your training, going day to day to day, it's not a good idea to ride six days in a row uh, as like a test to see if you can do it you're fine. You can get it done, but definitely ramp up more training stress than you normally would yeah. for something like that. Um, but I think that more or less covers like how I would prepare for a stage race and what you should do. Yeah. Yeah, man. I crashed out. I guess that's, uh, how we'll end off on this, but I crashed out. So what happened? I don't know. <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> cool.
1: Great story. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Good story.
0: Riveting <laughs> podcast, Jonathan. <laughs> cool story. Hansel. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where I crashed. Uh, according to somebody, he said he was the first person to come across me after I crashed and he said I was sitting up and I said I was concussed, but I'm okay. I don't know. I was not okay. I was lying to him. I don't remember this, but I'm sure I was very focused on finishing a race. I, I thought I crashed with three kilometers to go. Cause that was the last thing I remembered. Mm-hmm. I remembered, uh, I was on like a skinny, like on a bridge and I was like probably five feet off the ground. And I thought, oh. And it was, it wasn't like super skinny, like you'd be able to unclip and just barely fit a foot down mm-hmm. there. And I remember coming to while I was riding across it and going, I probably shouldn't be up here cause I'm a little loopy. And so I like, there was a tree like right next to me. So I like braced with my hand unclipped and then I walked across the bridge. So I thought that I actually crashed then I, I couldn't remember. Cause that was the last thing that I remembered. Yeah, It turns out that was three kilometers to go. I crashed like closer to like 10 kilometers to go. So I rode seven kilometers, like in a zombie state, man, I don't remember any of it. And if you look at the power data, I was actually putting out good power. Like (laughs) it's weird (laughs) patch on the back, (laughs) but no, No, that's the weird thing. It wasn't like I was just limping along. Right. Like I was like racing, that's just nuts. And if you fall in those moments, like it can be very easily fatal after a concussion like that. So pretty nuts. Didn't know where I was, didn't know what month it was, anything else like that. Um, so I'm taking my time on this recovery. Uh, I have, I have not told myself I'm getting back on the bike at this day and I'm not going to do that. I'm just taking my time. Uh, concussions are serious business. So, yeah.
1: cause even now you're still having, you know, issues. Yes. Severe. You know, you're issues. back to work, but it's, kind of. uh, it's less, mm-hmm. less work, less intense yeah. driving is still, you even said today, driving was kind of a chore getting into work today.
0: Yeah, I took a break. Yeah, it took I a to have, break
1: from driving. I had to
0: have a rest interval from driving. It was yeah. a little much. So, it's like
1: when BMW drivers finally realize that they actually have turn <laughs> signals and they don't have to drive like a douche. Oh gosh. And they just really have to like take a break from driving every so often. <laughs> and so Steven's got something against BMW drivers apparently. Yeah. Um, we love you.
0: So, just kidding. And I guess the last thing I really want to end off on, on concussions is uh, take them seriously. If you do get them, my POC, the, that was the helmet I was wearing. I hit right on my face and temporal lobe. I went, I do remember the sound of my face going into a granite slab uh-huh. at high speed. That's all I remember. What does it sound like? A uh, big smack splat thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I, I, hit right on my temporal lobe on the left side and like cheekbone area down to the chin yeah. and, um, my, my pock crunched down to about a third of its width there that is a good helmet, man. Yeah. And it didn't break. It didn't deform anything like that. It just scrunched down that, that far. So that's some seriously good EPS yeah.
1: foam that's in that helmet. It just absorbed that energy and slowed down that impact yep. deceleration. And
0: so many people, I, you know, like send me messages like that helmet looks so huge. And it's like, you know what? Like, don't care. That's what saved me right there. It yeah. was my helmet being thick there. Cause I see so many companies like for aero benefits they make on the XC side of things. You wear a road helmet and it's super narrow because yeah. th- that's the, the footprint they want to cut out. They want to reduce your frontal area. Yeah. And I'm s- glad that POC not only has wider there, but it also drops down more than most helmets that XC racers are to use. I think it saved me. Yeah. So, and I know everyone says that, you know, their helmet saved them, but I really do think it did because this impact was severe. Yeah. So kudos POC on that one. Pretty impressive stuff. Um, if you do have a concussion don't unless your doctor tells you otherwise cuz you should listen to a doctor and not me um but the whole no sleeping thing is a wives tale uh don't worry unless you have like a severe brain injury then yeah, yeah you would not want to go unconscious <laughs> yeah uh but otherwise like uh, you're you're fine to do that um in this case i just have to spend a lot of time doing nothing which is unfortunately very hard for a person like me mm-hmm. so uh yeah got to figure out i even it had out. to make the poor guy uh, dinner one night you did. It was delicious. Thank yeah. you, man. Anywho, uh, Stephen, let's close this out with the tips. Tips. You don't care? They're counting on your tips to live? <laughs> this one's a little weird. <laughs> this is uncomfortable. I'm already grinning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, Jonathan wears girl shoes.
0: I do wear women's shoes, uh, just cycling shoes, at, because I wear S-Works shoes, mm-hmm. and the difference between the men's S-Works ones and the women's ones uh, there isn't any, maybe on the brand new versions. I don't know, but well, the
1: women's version is prettier. I think this is true. It does so, have a
0: diamond around the
1: S. Yeah. Well, and they're just prettier in general.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I got the, I S work shoes fit my feet. I can't find anything else that fit them quite as well.
1: Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. He refuses to try Mavic's though.
0: I wore a, I tried those on. They were the wrong size, but yeah, they, the wrong size. they were also just a different shape. Like okay. it, it would have been tough on my feet to, okay. to work that in the only ones that fit my foot well, uh, curse you specialized for doing that. Cause they're so expensive. I end up spending like $800 a year on just shoes mm-hmm. and that's two pairs of shoes, a pair we of road shoes and a pair people. of mountain bike shoes. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're good shoes. They're really good for XC anyways. They, they, I wanted white ones, uh, and they didn't have them. And, but then I looked at it and they didn't have 43s in like any size or sorry, in any color. Beside red, and I don't want to have red shoes, just can't do that. So I kept looking around, and then I thought, huh, I wonder if the men's and women's shoes are different. And I looked around, asked some people, and uh, no, they're they're not different. So I got the white shoes I wanted. They're women's shoes, and they're size forty three, and they fit like a charm. So, anyways, uh, if you are looking for specialized shoes, because right now they are the S Work shoes are like severely like they're really hard to find. Mm-hmm. The women's shoes can work as well. Uh, and the reason they're hard to find, I think, is because they must have had a bad forecast on demand for those shoes because they're completely out and they aren't going to have them until the 2018s come out. Dang. So not completely out, but in a lot of sizes. Anyways, so,
1: and I don't feel bad about wearing, wearing women's shoes, Steven. As you shouldn't. Thank you. You should feel empowered and you should feel strong. <laughs> Thank you. No matter what you do, Jonathan. I feel fierce. So, yes, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Stephen. My tip, um, as we know, I'm not a huge fan of my SRAM guide brakes. They haven't broken yet, which is good. Should we cover something really quick on this front? No, we're gonna get there. Don't you worry about it, that's (laughs) why I'm smiling. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I've been playing around with my guide RS's and trying to get them to work better and function better. So I've gone through and done full fluid swaps. You know, I'm using uh, Motul RBF 660 fluid in it now. And uh, I've actually switched over to Jaguar pads, Um, So I've been trying... Me too. Yeah. At your recommendation. Yeah. So I've been trying both the extreme centered metal pads, and I've also been playing with the pro semi-metallics. They actually increase the performance of those brakes. I've also got them in the cross bike on my force hydraulic brakes. Yeah. Way better than any stock SRAM pads.
0: On my level ultimates, better too. What, What I noticed being better is like a more substantial contact feel like a more... Like, uh, the SRAM ones have a bit of a vague feel. When yes. the pads make contact, you get a little more squish. Yeah. These ones feel like it's more solid. Yeah.
1: um, Yeah, I don't have any howling issues or anything like that or chirping. Yeah. And they tend to work – they just work better. Yeah. You know, when they get wet, they work better. The centered, the extremes, those things, they don't change performance when they're wet. They're just good all the time. Yeah. I think that the overall braking – of the pro semi-metallics is better mm-hmm. but the sintered are just made to run ridiculously hot and not be affected by any sort of you know atmospherics or environmental changes yeah so i've been really liking those um those brake pads and You're good and you guys are all running them you nate and chad from trainer road are running them in your um in your cross bikes um i actually just put them on nate's venge nice um because he has the e-tap hydro yeah he has the e-tap red Hydro. hydro stuff yeah. thing. It's pretty fancy. Yeah. It's very fancy stuff. Yeah. Um, and I just really like them. They're good. Yeah. But on a different note, what I'm grinning about right now, <laughs> Jonathan, would you like to share with us after your experiences at single track six with blistering and, you know, all the things that happen up there? Yeah. On my hands. Yeah. Um, Mm. Can we explain why I'm right about something? Can you elaborate a little bit? Hold on, this crow's pretty hard to eat, right? Now. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Uh, I'm I'm switching over to Shimano brakes, and why is that, Jonathan? <laughs> I'm sure there's a gasp from a lot of yeah. people. Yeah, uh, because they're better. Really? <laughs> yeah. People must think that you have a gun to my head or something, right now. <laughs> they right? probably do. <laughs> yeah.
1: Can you no, tell? Better. Can you tell the audience why? you are switching from your level ultimates.
0: Yeah. So, um, so first of all, the level ultimates introduced a strange problem. Uh, I mentioned this it was a clever move, SRAM, uh, by giving uh, basically the, the levels are a single caliper instead of a dual caliper, a design or dual figure, give me single piston rather than dual piston or they're a dual
1: instead of a four piston.
0: Dual instead of four. This yeah. is correct. One per side. Yes. Yeah. Um, so dual piston design, less powerful than the guides. Yeah. So what they do is they give you a longer lever. Okay. So then you have more and pardon the pun here, but leverage over that. And as a result, that allows you to then feel like you have more power. Very clever, SRAM. I see mm-hmm. what you did there. Yeah. The problem with that is that with SRAM, uh, I have my reverb remote and on my right side and my shifter, obviously on the right side, mm-hmm. because on the left side, I have the um, my lockout, yeah, hydraulic lockout. Uh, because that long lever is there, I've been forced to move the perch inward. And since I've moved it inward, I have to reposition my hand every time I drop the, the post and every time I shift, it's a very slight repositioning. But when you do it that many times on rough terrain, like mm-hmm. I did at single track six and even at Whistler. Uh, it starts to take a toll on your hands. Okay. And I had blisters four blisters deep. There's a blister on top of a blister, on top of a blister, on top of a blister.
1: That's like a blister inception. It
0: was a blister inception. It was like a Russian doll blister on my hand. There yeah. you go. Uh, and it was extremely painful, bloody and nasty. And imagine trying to hold onto your bike through extremely gnarly terrain with that. Did you then, call
1: Leonardo DiCaprio? Did he help?
0: <laughs> no, I did not. Okay, good. Um, having like three and then another blister on your hand that was like, it was three deep and that was up to the top. It was really hard to hold on. Yeah. So, uh, reasons I'm switching. Uh, first of all, if I go to the guides or sorry, another thing on these long descents like that, I was getting some substantial arm pump. <laughs> And that's because I was having to cl- clamp down so much harder. Now, the longer lever of the SRAM levels compared to the SRAM guides, makes it so you basically have to pull the same, you know, apply the same tension to the brake levers to get the same power. So it's the same work. Yep, same work for your mm-hmm. body. But it's a lot more work than you have to do with a Shimano mm-hmm. XT or, I mean, heck, even an SLX setup, yeah. right? So, uh, and you're just grinning over there. But so I'm, I am I'm switching over because I want something that has more power uh, so I I am frustrated by the lack of modulation that I'll have. I know I'll get used to it, mm-hmm. but I will be a bit frustrated by that. Um, I think that when I get sloppy, I could have situations where I might grab a little too much break and that'll probably last for a while. I'll get used to it, but still when I get sloppy, I'll probably have situations where I do that. Yeah. But um, I'll, I'll work that out. But the main thing is I'm switching over because I want something that's better ergonomically, but above all, and ergonomics because of the fact that I have to move things around so much. Yeah. But above all... I want something with more power so I don't have to grip as hard. I can therefore save more energy and be faster. There you go. It's just for me, being faster is the ultimate goal, right? And uh, because of that, uh, I'm actually going to sacrifice the feel that I like out of the SRAM brakes because I feel like it will make me faster. There you go. So I'm going to go with XTRs. XTR race? Yeah. There you go. Yep. XTR race on the XT bike. And then I'll just go with some XT
1: trails on on, uh, an enduro bike that I'll be building next year. So you heard it here, people. The one thing that we disagreed on. We resolved it. We resolved the issue. And by we resolved, I mean that Jonathan finally agreed with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what, though? I think that I've agreed the whole time with you. Yeah. We Because I, I have said that they're more powerful. Yeah. They're a better break, right? Okay. Yeah. They really are. It's just um, I was holding on to the feel, and I was just put into a situation now where I was like, you know what? The feel is not as high of a priority. I need to be more pragmatic about this, like yeah. get over the feel and just get down to brass tacks. What is faster? This is going to be faster. Yep. So I'll dislike the feel more, but it'll make me faster. There you go. So that's it. All right, Steven, that's it. I think we're done. Yes. Thanks everybody for joining us. You can, once again, listen to this podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to find it at mtbpodcast.com, submit questions, buy things on that store uh, that you like. And share that with your friends, share the episodes with your friends, and that'll help us keep this thing going, as always. Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Have a nice day. Hey, guys. Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.